Welcome to the Halliday Wine Companion Podcast. This is our space to chat about wine without all the fluff, from how to taste and describe it to how to pair it to that dinner party you're hosting next weekend. We'll be chatting to industry professionals from across the country, tackling all things wine from a palatable perspective. I'm Tom Carr, your host, and I'm part of the team here at Halliday, and this is By the Glass. So today is a rather exciting day because it's our very first episode dedicated entirely to one grape variety. And it's one that I'm sure you're all very familiar with. Savion Blanc, also known lovingly as Savvy B. Now, while New Zealand's Marlborough region is synonymous with the varietal, it's actually a bit of an international juggernaut, remaining one of the fastest growing wines in the world. And while there's been a real shift away from those distinct grassy tropical fruit-laden wines that we all think of, uh, Savion Blanc is enjoying a bit of a stylistic revival, with winemakers across Australia serving up sophisticated wines that have depth, complexity and beautiful length on the palate. Today we are joined by Margaret River winemaker Stuart Pym of Flowstone Wines. Uh, Flowstone have won several awards for their Savion Blanc and have also previously taken out the title of Best New Winery at the Halliday Wine Companion Awards. Can you please welcome Stuart? Thank you very much for that, Tom. No, no, no. Um, thank you very much for joining us, Stuart. Uh, Stu, I wanted to ask you, we are drinking a lovely glass of your Savion Blanc right now. Can you tell us what we are drinking today? What we're drinking is the current release of Flowstone, the 2018 Flowstone Sauvignon Blanc. 2018 sounds like it's an old wine for Sauvignon Blanc, but the way I make it, um, it's not made in the rushed, hurried, straight-to-market style. It's made with some patience and time to really build texture, nuance and complexity. And I have to admit, it's probably one of the favourite ones I've made because 2018 was such a good vintage, Margaret River. Why, on that, why was it such a great vintage? The ripening season, so say from December through to harvest March, April, was warm but not extremely hot and didn't have any significant rain during that period. Uh, so it was just moderate and mild and everything got to ripen beautifully. Um, the reds are stunning. Yeah, fabulous. Uh, Stuart, let's start with the basics for people at home. We all, Most of us know Savion Blanc, but can you tell us a little bit about the varietal? I guess, as you mentioned earlier, when you say Savion Blanc to most people, they think of the Mulder expression, which is that brightly fresh, passion fruity, zippy, immediate sort of wine which has the bright flavours but sort of not a lot of substance on the palate. But Savion Blanc is grown around the world, obviously in Australia, but obviously North America as well, South Africa, Argentina. But its old home is really in France, in an area in the Loire Valley uh, called Sancerre-en-Pouille-Fumé, where it's been grown for centuries. Um, whereas the, the Kiwi ones, what we called in the trade the Savalanche, when that happened, <laughs> um, early in the 2000s. So, uh, but, yeah, it does have a lot more history and credibility than a lot of people think it does. And we're going to get to that uh, very soon, but it's, and you've obviously referenced it, Savion Blanc has had a rather interesting 
right, um, particularly in Australia. Why did it become so popular and how is it now perceived in society? I think what, what really worked for people was that it's brightly fruity immediacy and lots of really lovely, enjoyable flavours, um, so fresh and vibrant and zippy uh, and just a really lovely casual drink and extraordinarily distinctive as well. Sometimes wines can be very subtle and nuanced and, and complex, but the, the Kiwi, the Marlborough Sauvignon Blancs are extraordinarily distinctive with lots of really lovely, enjoyable fruit flavours. And I think that just hit the point and the mark with a lot of just casual drinkers in particular. And timing was everything. And why? Because it has, among our um, certain circles, it has fallen a little bit out of popularity. Why is that? And things are very popular. Sometimes there's a pushback against them, particularly by the sort of um, the more serious people in the world. Um, but also I think people were, were getting the becoming aware that they're quite one-dimensional wines and want wines to, to perhaps offer more than that. But having said that, there are an awful lot of general wine drinkers that still really love that style and the bright, fresh, quaffing wine while they're having a conversation. Do you think that um, obviously Chardonnay is another variety that fell out of fashion and then went back in vogue uh, and, it became, and it came back as, as a far more complex, refined wine is Savion Blanc just experiencing the same cycle uh I think there is a degree of that I mean when when the anything but Chardonnay thing happened I was working at Devil's Lair and I can tell you our Chardonnay production and sales never went down so even though there was this talk against it there's an awful lot of people still drinking Chardonnay and I'm pretty sure that's the same thing happening with Savion Blanc there's this sort of this negative feel in the general market, but there's still a lot of people that really enjoy it and are still drinking it. However, as you mentioned with Chardonnay, the style evolved. I can see that happening with Sauvignon Blanc as well. What does happen in a region like Marlborough that puts so much focus and energy into one particular variety, in this case, Savion Blanc, and then that varietal falls out of vogue? I mean, what do they do? It's a, it's a very good and interesting question and, and something that a lot of regions have to embrace at some stage. Um, and there was certainly a feel like that with Margaret River when Chardonnay was having its, its negative time. But I think you have to sit back and take a, a much broader view and acknowledge what the region's strengths are and what its identity is. And with grapes, there just happen to be some regions that really excel at certain grape varieties. And for someone like Marlborough, I think they just probably have to acknowledge that they're the king of that expression of Sauvignon Blanc and there are an awful lot of people in the world still drinking it. So I don't think they're about to go into receivership. Um, <laughs> but perhaps they look to diversify their risks a little bit by planting and making more Chardonnay, say, and Pinot Noir and other things, which I know they do do anyway. But I think they're going to have to acknowledge their strength is Sauvignon Blanc and perhaps diversify the offering a little bit, which I know they're doing as well, making more serious expressions as well. So they're growing with that that Sauvignon Blanc style evolution. And I want to get into that stylistic evolution, but I first want to talk about what is the typical taste profile of a Sauvignon Blanc? Yeah, I think the the characters of, of Sauvignon Blanc are quite diverse uh, and range. And for me, the really nice characters that have this, obviously always that passion fruit aromatics, but there are still lovely stone fruit characters and I always like it to white flesh nectarines. Then also some hints of feijoa and slightly exotic characters, but not overripe. And the flavours 
come down to some quite grassy elements sometimes and even hints of gherkins sometimes. Uh, and they sort of really reflect a lot of where the grapes are grown and how they're grown with the crop levels and how ripe they get and then how the wines are made. But without doubt, there is still always a really lovely, powerful fruit drive to the wine. Why does it sometimes smell like grass? Uh, it is an inherent character in the wine, so it's there all the time. I think when you tend to pick it earlier, and some people want to make a more zippy, restrained type of Sauvignon Blanc, it retains more of those flavours because the, the riper ones evolve and develop as the grapes get a bit riper. I think sometimes those grassy, gherkiny ones are from some very commercial-style wines as well where the crops are quite big because Sauvignon Blanc can grow quite big crops. Um, so it doesn't tend to get as ripe as it possibly can. Yeah, interesting. And you mentioned it briefly, but what are the ideal conditions for Sauvignon Blanc? Now, again, that's another tricky, awkward question because it's growing so widely around the world. You could argue there is an awful lot of perfect conditions for it. And, and it does make lovely wine in a whole variety of areas from some quite cool areas to some quite warm areas. But one thing it doesn't like is rain during vintage. It can get disease quite easily, like botrytis disease quite easily uh, and fungus stuff. Um, so it does like moderate to warm and dry ripening period. So for us, that would be, say, from the end of January through to the end of March. But as I mentioned, in France, it's a much cooler region and there are other much warmer regions in the world that, that make lovely expressions as well. So it is quite a diverse and resilient grape variety. You just mentioned botrytis and people at home might not know a lot about botrytis, but botrytis can it can make a lovely dessert wine. Does botrytis only have a negative effect on Sauvignon Blanc? No, no, it can have a positive effect. And I mean, Sauvignon Blanc is one of the varieties in Saturns. Um, so they're making lovely um, botrytis-derived dessert wines from Semillon and Sauvignon Blanc. So it, it can really contribute to those that concentrated, raisiny, complex, intense sort of character. But not in the right conditions, it can get that disease and just give a real fungusy, mouldy, horrible flavour to the to the wine. I think which this is not very nice. <laughs> Absolutely not. I, I think that this is probably a good time to just touch on this a little bit more because I think people at home, as I said, probably don't know what botrytis is and how it impacts wine, both negatively and positively. Can you just give us a brief overview? Well, it's a fungus that grows on the skin of the grape berry. And depending on the conditions, it can allow the moisture within the berry to seep out. So it just really concentrates the berry. So it sort of becomes a bit of a raisin, but not quite as raisiny as a commercial raisin. So it just really concentrates the flavour. And in the right conditions, it stays like that as concentrating the berries and adding a, a, a desirable flavour as well. But in less than ideal conditions, that fungus continues to grow and builds this big sort of fungusy mat all over the berries and the bunches and it's it's horrible and it tastes like mould and it is mould. Um, so in the right conditions, it concentrates um, the grapes and gives a lovely intensity and depth and expression of flavour, but in the wrong conditions, it just turns a bunch of grapes into a bunch of mould. And when you say it uh, creates, uh, it can create a lovely intensity in the grape, those grapes uh, for people at home are then turned into lovely um, sticky sweet dessert wines. Yeah, and I mean, there are some classic Australian examples as well. Um, now, we've touched on the stylistic, well, we, we really haven't explored the stylistic evolution just as yet, but we're going to do that now. So 
Winemakers are increasingly looking for texture, complexity, and a more rounded mouthfeel. What sort of stylistic change have you noticed over the years? Bear in mind, I probably was first making Sauvignon Blanc when I was working at Voyager Estate in the early 90s uh, and first started looking at barrel fermenting Sauvignon Blanc when my partner and I started the Suck Fizzle brand, which was um, modelled on white Bordeaux, so barrel fermented Sauvignon Blanc and Sauvignon. But certainly people are looking to get more dimension and complexity and palate length onto Sauvignon Blanc and a lot of people are looking to the subtle use of oak and sometimes not so subtle fermenting turbid juices rather than bright, clean juices, and also using more wild or Indigenous yeast fermentation. So really, I guess, sort of um, applying more Chardonnay techniques to the use of Sauvignon Blanc. For me personally, um, and the Flowstone Sauvignon Blanc is from one specific vineyard that I lease now, I I start that in the vineyard uh, with how it's grown, minimal, if any, irrigation. The crop levels are kept to a low to moderate rate, so I'm actually trying to get the intensity of flavour and focus and length of palate starting in the grapes rather than using some winemaking tricks. And I think it's probably a really good time to explain what you mean when you talk about low crop levels because obviously the more crop there is, uh, that um, flavour is diluted. Can you explain to us yeah, what you mean by that? I guess, and Sauvignon Blanc is a fantastic example of a grape variety that can grow a lot of grapes per tonne, so a lot of grapes per vine. And from a commercial point of view, the more that happens, the more wine you will get off a certain area of vineyard. But as you mentioned, it does dilute the flavour, but also makes a big crop, dilutes the flavour, but also makes the grape vines work a whole lot harder. So they, they tend to stress and struggle to get the grapes to the same level of ripeness. Um, but for certain wine styles, that still is fine. Sauvignon Blanc can still have those lovely punchy passion fruit, and this is where the grassy bits come in sometimes, um, characters. Whereas, again, from, from my view, I'm sort of at the other end where I want the Sauvignon Blanc not to stress and not to get diluted by excessive irrigation, but to really develop its own beautifully focused fruit flavours and palate length and weight. Um, so it is more a, a vineyard-focused wine. Uh, and again, in with the Flowstone wines, in my mind's eye, I'm looking more at the old world home of Sauvignon Blanc or Salsé and Puy Fumé, more so than the new world expressions. We, just off air, were chatting about a, a turn of phrase, uh, Fumé Blanc. Now people at home probably have no idea what that means. I mean, some people will. Can you explain to us what that turn of phrase means? I think, and you see it more and more now as more people are developing more complex Sauvignon Blanc styles. And nowadays it primarily means Sauvignon Blanc that has had some time in barrel. Um, so some, some oak contribution to its aromatics and palate length. Um, but it's actually a term that was coined, I think it was in the very late 70s by Robert Mondavi in California. Um, and I always thought it was a, a very clever term with the Fumé Blanc, the Fumé alluding to the smoky characters of the oak, but also borrowing a little bit of credibility from the old world home of Sauvignon Blanc of Puy Fumé. So it was a nice use of sort of explaining the wine style a bit, but also telling you it's a serious wine. And how does oak influence the flavour of Sauvignon Blanc? Again, a very complex question. If you, knew, if you use 
new woke you're getting lots of the smoky chari characters which just do add sort of a, a baseline underneath those lovely bright aromatic punchy Sauvignon Blanc characters um, but you're also getting some sort of nutty brioche sort of oatmeal notes as well which again are forming a more solid base underneath the brightly aromatic um, Sauvignon Blanc characters but a lot of it is also some people just barrel ferment the Sauvignon Blanc in, in new barrels, and that, and that tends to give very specific aromatic characters. But then other people are leaving it in barrel for an extended period on the yeast lees, um, like we do with Chardonnay. And you do get some lovely creamy textural pickup that way as well. So there's lots of options available to help take the style of the Sauvignon Blanc to where you want it to be. Do you think that's why people use the turn of phrase Fumé Blanc to almost separate themselves from a consumer perspective away from that classic Marlborough Sauvignon Blanc? Yes, absolutely. And I think the notioning that it's more serious and more dimensions of flavour and a more serious wine. That's interesting. I mean, as I mentioned, my wine is in big barrels stationed there for a year, but I choose to call it Sauvignon Blanc still because I don't use any new oak on it. it the first fill of those big barrels of the new barrel is always Chardonnay. It doesn't get any new oak, so I'm not trying to get overt smoky new oak characters into it, just more subtle textual nuanced characters. What do you love about the variety? I mean, I should have asked that question straight away, but <laughs> why do you make it and why do you love it so much? I think I just love the aromatics um, when they're at the beautifully ripe stage, not overly ripe in fruit salad, but that lovely nectarine, um, Fijoa, and you can get some beautifully minerally characters into it as well. And particularly the old world expressions have a lot of that minerality, but have a lovely pure length of flavour without being rich like Chardonnay, but still has texture and presence and dimension. So it actually engages you as well. Uh, now, make no mistake, I'm a very big Chardonnay fan as well, but it's just uh, it's a different offering and a different expression. And there is such a diverse offering around the world of Sauvignon Blancs. It's, it's, um, it's quite a journey to, to understand what it can, can be. How does it compare to other white wine varieties? Oh, certainly. I mean, and the aromatics are a standout. Apart from perhaps Muscat or Gewürztraminer, it must be the most aromatic variety. And certainly um, compared to Gewürztraminer, it is eminently more pronounceable. So at the, the, the level with the public, they're going to embrace it a whole lot more. But Sauvignon Blanc, um, in the general, across the broad spectrum, just does have lovely aromatics, which engages people and invites them in. So the first sensation they get are those lovely aromatics, which they enjoy, and that invites them into the wine. And it normally doesn't let them down, shouldn't let them down. So it is a just a very enjoyable, engaging wine that can be a really lovely casual lunchtime glass of wine, or it can be a really expensive, significant wine expression and experience. Yeah, because you were saying... Yes, you can pay a lot of money for Sauvignon Blanc. Yeah, because you were saying to me uh, before we got into this interview that there are some really expensive Sauvignon Blancs out there, and I think that a lot of people think of it as just a cheap white wine. I mean, that's absolutely not the case, right? No, absolutely not. And I think Australia's most expensive wine might be around seventy to eighty dollars. Expensive Sauvignon Blanc might be around seventy to eighty dollars. But you know, if you go to France and Saint-Saint-Pierre, you can spend into the hundreds, um, particularly for one particular producer. But yes, there are there is a lot of history in these places as well, and so you're you're paying for the time and the, and the credibility 
and and the history and the reputation. Um, but yes, Sauvignon Blanc can be expensive. Stuart, <laughs> what what sort of what sort of uh, foods does Sauvignon Blanc pair really well with? Most people would suggest seafood, and it does. It actually pairs really well with seafood. But another really good pairing is with with goat's cheese or chèvre, and it's interesting that. Sauvignon Blanc home in, in France in the Loire Valley is also the home of the goat's cheese area as well. So it's a it's just something that's grown up together and sort of it's almost innate with, with the two of them that they do go really beautifully together. And in Margaret River, seafood is a big part of what we do because we're surrounded by ocean pretty much. So that's always a, a beautiful and easy connection with shellfish to Augusta Whiting to all sorts of stuff. Um, but also Sauvignon Blanc by itself isn't too bad as a warm-up to dinner. Is there any rules around ageing Sauvignon Blanc? Um, again, a complex question with many answers to it. A lot of it depends on the expression of Sauvignon Blanc you have. And if you, you're dealing with um, the most obvious commercial Sauvignon Blanc out there, it's usually a wine that's made to be enjoyed almost immediately, probably will age for a year or two or three, um, but then tends to get a bit tired. Um, but... The serious Sauvignon Blancs of the world can age surprisingly well. As an example, earlier in the year, I think it might have been about February or March or something, was International Sauvignon Blanc Day. And to celebrate, I got a bottle of the first Flowstone Sauvignon Blanc, which is a 2011, and opened that on that particular day. And hell, even I was surprised as to how beautifully it was still drinking. And that's a 10-year-old Sauvignon Blanc, still drinking fantastically. So that's sort of goes against most people's expectations of what the variety can be, but it can age. So a case by case. Yeah, it is, yeah. How do we serve our Sauvignon Blanc? Is it something that we should serve quite cold, um, a little bit more at room temperature, or will we just watch the wine develop in the glass as the temperature rises? Personally, I go with the, the latter one there. But again, it is, it's the occasion a lot um, and the wine style as well. It, it is... For those bright, fresh, fruity ones, even served a bit chilled, those aromatics still leap out of the glass and engage you. So if on a warm summer's day, which today isn't, if you're down at a cafe for lunch out in the sunshine under an umbrella, um, a nice chilled glass of Sauvignon Blanc will go beautifully. But it doesn't It doesn't have to be chilled. For me, the more complex ones, if you have them at room temperature and sit there and watch it, not watch it, taste it over an hour or two and even then again the second night, you will really be surprised out to how, how well it evolves and the, the nuances and complexity in there. Pretty much like Chardonnay. Stuart, the last question is probably the most important. What does the future look like for uh, Sauvignon Blanc and why do you think we should be drinking it? What does the future? Well, Sauvignon Blanc, as we discussed, even though it's had some negative connotations around the place, is still enormously popular. And I can personally, I can actually only see it getting more popular as the stylistic offering gets more, gets broader and there's more serious and complex wines being offered. So we'll engage a different set of wine consumers, but also the people that already love Sauvignon Blanc may move on to these more complex styles as well and appreciate and acknowledge the diversity of the variety. Now, make no mistake, I'm not telling people they have to enjoy Sauvignon Blanc because there are wine styles that I don't like and ones I don't like, and it comes down to your personal preferences and tastes. But it does have these wonderful aromatics and freshness and vibrance and can have a lovely purity and minerality and complexity. So it can actually reward the consumer at many different levels. 
Stuart, today has been so incredibly interesting. Thank you so much for giving us your time today to chat about all things Savion Blanc. Thank you very much. It's been a lot of fun. Now, I'm going to have a glass. <laughs> Absolutely. That is what Fridays are for. Now, before we go, August 12 is fast approaching and we are gearing up to honour the very best in Australian wine with the 2022 Halliday Wine Companion Awards. Now, this year we have two ways to celebrate. In person at our fine dining degustation dinner at Stokehouse St Kilda or virtually with our online streaming event. Now, I'll put all the links in today's show notes and don't forget, if you are celebrating at home, don't forget to tag Halliday 2022 in all of your celebrations. Thanks again to Stuart from Flowstone Wines, and I'll see you all next week on By the Glass. Have a fabulous weekend. Bye.